0: The following is the first installment of the Mezzanine podcast, where we explore experimental laser physics with Harvey Mudd professor Peter Sayeda. I hope you enjoy.
1: So I went to South Pasadena High School, um, and we had an unusual uh, sequence in that normally you expect, I think, biology, then chemistry, then physics, but we had it in the opposite order. So I did a physics course in 10th grade. It was not calculus-based, but the, the first week of class before any instruction took place involved our doing three experiments. Experiments, in mm-hmm. One of them was to measure the height of the water tower on the far hill mm-hmm. without leaving the building. One of them was to weigh the little dot that a hole punch makes uh, a paper okay. without having of course access to any scale or anything and i can't for the life of me remember but i being a nerd had you know learned by trig and i sort of worked out using straws and protractors and sighting from one end of the building to the other. And, okay, so I I put all this into my fancy calculator and it spat out 10 digits <laughs> for the height of the water tower. And I dutifully wrote them all down. Mm-hmm. I turned it in. Mm-hmm. And later the teacher, he's so good, uh, was just having a casual conversation with so this is a very interesting method. Would it surprise you if the actual height was off by a factor of two compared to what you listed? And I said, oh, no, not at all, because it was really hard making these angle sightings and so on. Oh, that's interesting. Well, then, why did you write down all these digits? And I said, oh, and I haven't made that mistake. Yeah. Since. <laughs> um, and physics was fun because it was applying math to the world, real world stuff, or at least fake world stuff, um, in, if we're able to eliminate friction and so on. I just found that very engaging and, and interesting. And it also played to the strength of not having to memorize a bunch of stuff, but actually trying to get. As much as you can out of out of as little. So I I had a good time. Then I went into did the chemistry the next year and biology the senior year.
0: I back to that. My yeah. school also did the biology, chemistry, physics thing, and I never understood that because once you get through physics and you look back, you kind of see how they build on each other the opposite direction. Do you have any opinions on? Like- yeah.
1: So um, I am told that in the American in the history of American education it became biology chemistry physics because that was alphabetical <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a problem that occurs in european education system because they have all of them every year oh so at the same
0: when, time different semesters or no so
1: of- when i was teaching in west africa in a french based system i did the physics and chemistry together And then there was science, not so natural science, uh, biology, Um, and even the students in the literary series had some of us every week. Now the schedule wasn't necessarily the same every day of the week, but um, yeah. So they, so it doesn't arise. It, It it just happened that, for instance, they do mechanics in. Uh, and a sort of broad survey in the sort of between 10th and 11th grade years, and then um, E&M and optics um, in the next year, and finally Newtonian mechanics more carefully with calculus in the last year. So, um, yeah, in this country Leon Letterman uh, was trying to get physics first, Um, Mm -hmm. and I think it makes a lot of sense, provided that you're willing to let go of calculus because y- you can't assume that that's student, th- but that's that's fine. I mean, yeah. and we sort of use a similar strategy with starting with special relativity mm-hmm. where the mathematical requirements are, are, are modest, but you're working on building up from base principles and analyzing and, and problem solving, so. If, if, it everyone, if you ever want to jump in, you can grab the tube. Yeah.
0: Well, I was gonna ask uh, with with teaching in Africa. Was that like early? That was that like right out of college or something? Or? Five hours. <laughs> Five hours. I think you might have mentioned that actually. <laughs> and so, prob- was it probably your first introduction to teaching and that sort of thing? Or yeah. And and were you like what drew you to that opportunity? So,
1: so I mentioned to you that I had traveled in Japan. Right. Um, that was the summer before my. Uh, senior year of high school, and uh, the trip was led by some family friends, and I totally forgot about thinking, you know, maybe the Peace Corps would be an interesting thing to do, which arose on that trip and then got totally displaced from my consciousness. But as I was um, contemplating my senior year at college and applying to graduate schools, a part of me felt like Uh, I don't know that I'm ready to Mm. go to graduate school. Um, That seems like a kind of permanent decision. Um, And the idea came back that I should think about. So I applied to both. And around November, um, I had a conversation with this guy who had led the trip and told him I was applying to Peace Corps, and he said, "Oh, that's great! You're, you're going to apply to French-speaking Africa, right? Not just Africa, so you can learn a language." And I said, "Oh, that's a good idea." So I called up the recruiter, and the recruit and, and asked, "You know, look, I, I don't know any French. I'm taking my first quarter of German at the moment. Um, would it maybe be a good idea?" To switch and take some French before I show up and the recruiters said oh don't worry about it and I thought that's really stupid (laughs) so I did I took two quarters of French best damn decision I mean it laid a foundation and uh, and then I just worked at it for the, the two years that I was there because trying to explain physics to relate to life in the village <laughs> in French put more demands, let's say, on vocabulary than if I were teaching math. So since I ended up marrying a volunteer who taught math, you know, this is a standard conversation. <laughs> but I have to point out that, yeah, we had to work hard. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs>
0: and and you said, like, maybe you weren't sure that you wanted to go to grad school yeah. and did your time in Africa change that or time?
1: Right. So what So, what I ended up doing was, as I say, applying to both. And when spring break came around and it was time to go visit graduate programs that I had been accepted to, I had yet to hear back from the Peace Corps. So I called them up to ask, uh, look, I need to know what – To tell these places if I want to ask for a deferment of a couple of years. And who are you? Uh, Oh oh, yeah, yeah, you have a job, thanks for telling me. Okay, fine. So I go off knowing from nothing, but yes, there is going to be a position for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ask the graduate programs um, for a two-year deferment. And No two gave me the same answer. Uh, I was in at MIT, but without any money. And so that was tantamount to not being in. Okay, (laughs) write them off. Um, Harvard said, yeah, whatever. Princeton said, no, but we'll hold on to your file and put it in two years from now. And if it's still looking okay, then yes. And at Cornell, where I was, for mysterious reasons, in the astrophysics program, having taken precisely zero (laughs) (laughs) astrophysics, it just sounded cool, (laughs) Um, the department chair immediately said, absolutely not. If you have humanitarian concerns, you can satisfy them perfectly well here in Ithaca. (laughs) Okay. Okay. The only person I had not yet met on the faculty was Carl Sagan, and uh, so I... Passed by his office before heading to the airport, and um, he excused himself for being late and asked if it was okay if he munched on a sandwich. Well, of course, yeah, who cares? And I, so, what's on your mind? asks he, and it was what Ivan Terzian had just told me, and. He thought about it for a moment. He said, oh, go with my blessing. You know, there's more to life than just physics. And here, he, here's here's a problem. You can think about this in your village. <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. But I did hear the message, go with my blessing. Hmm. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't really look back. And it turned out that uh, a friend from college and a friend from high school uh, were going to be at Harvard when uh, I got back. And so we all roomed together. Um, and, and that it just made it an easy entry there. So I went to teach. It taught me a number of important things, including that I enjoyed it. Um, and I wanted to do it at a slightly higher level mm-hmm. than high school. Um, so that meant coming back and getting a PhD. Um, and at the time, I didn't know, did I want to do experiment or theory And they couldn't tell from my application since I didn't know, and I I didn't realize I was supposed to make. (laughs) Didn't realize you were supposed to know. (laughs) Really (laughs) clueless. So so at Harvard, they gave me a theory advisor, and in our first conversation, he said, "If you can at all possibly do experiment, do experiment." And in retrospect, I think I understand what he's saying—that. The the bar is high for theorists. The competition is very, very keen. And so you have to be pretty confident that you want to do that. Um, Whereas there are more opportunities for experimentalists. And being fresh from Africa, I sort of felt like, well, probably if I wanted to go back and help out on something, it would Mm -hmm. be more valuable if I had some experimental skills. And so I made that choice. Um, And at least try to inform students as they're contemplating going off to graduate school, you know, what the trade-offs may be.
0: And what did you end up studying in, in graduate school?
1: Um, so the topic of my, um, thesis research was motivated by a problem in making integrated circuits. So in order to make, um, something interesting. You dope regions of uh, a silicon wafer or semiconductor wafer with uh, different atoms. And the way you do that, you start with a perfect crystal generally, and then you ion implant. So you you bash the thing with high-speed ions of the dopant atom. And that deposit, depending on the, the kinetic energy they have, it, it sort of sets how deep they're going to go. But it also, as you can well imagine, ruins some of the nice symmetry of the lattice and knocks things out of the way. And that is very bad for electronics. Yeah, I'm properties. guessing you want to like have it. So you need to figure quickly. out how to undo that damage without getting all the nice dopant atoms to leave. And typically, that's done with a thermal anneal. So you heat it up, and that relaxes, it gives enough vibrational energy around so that atoms can find the right spots. Um, but it also allows the dopant atoms to diffuse within the the solid, and you don't want that because you want to you want to secure sharp edges and and the profile of the things that. So there was a, a theory that. Um, maybe the way to do this without actually heating up the the sample was to use a really short laser pulse that was very intense. And that pulse, if it has the appropriate spectrum, could transfer a significant fraction of the bonding electrons to their anti-bonding states and the conduction band And that might relax things enough, you know, effectively instantaneously on the order of of femtoseconds, 10 to the minus 15 seconds, um, so that the damage could be quickly annealed, but there wasn't enough time for the dopant atoms to move appreciably. And that's what we were looking into. Is it possible to achieve femtosecond laser-induced annealing? Um, and one of the ways to try to understand can you can you kind of melt without actually giving things time enough to melt um, is to monitor the um, the symmetry of the crystal as um, manifested in second harmonic generation, so normally when you bounce some light off a piece of paper or a, a desk or what have you. Um, the color that goes in is the color that comes out, and depending on how absorbing the, the surface is or how scattering, you may see more or less. But but it's the same color, and that's that's true because your uh, the the light is composed of an oscillating electric and magnetic field that is very weak compared to the uh, electrostatic forces that define the orbitals that the electrons live in. And so you're making just a tiny perturbation and therefore you get a linear kind of response so that uh, that oscillation in the polarization of the atom is, um, is, is very very small, and it has the same frequency as the stimulus. But if you use a really intense laser pulse, the magnitude of the electric field in the pulse can actually get comparable to the static fields. And that's now shoving those electrons around pretty seriously. And so they start to notice that they're not moving just at the bottom of a harmonic oscillator Potential, They start noticing that one side is stiffer and the other side mm-hmm. is softer. And if you analyze that, you discover that, okay, so you get a strong contribution that is at the same frequency, but it's added to also a term that is at double the frequency. You start getting multiples. And depending on the... Uh, symmetry of the crystal, uh, this is either an allowed process in the bulk of the crystal, or it's not. So if a crystal has um, a center of symmetry, like silicon does, then in the bulk of the crystal, since it looks the same this way and that way, there's no way to figure out which way the quadratic term should go.
0: Do they cancel as a whole?
1: That's broken at the surface, and some of the first experiments that were done were on silicon, so the signal was weak, and our idea was to try to do this on a uh, crystal that lacks a center of inversion symmetry, gallium arsenide, because the signal is much stronger. And then hopefully we would be able to tease out more unambiguously whether it was disordering so that was the that was the basis of the the thesis work i built the first um femtosecond laser at harvard just copying a design that had uh, been developed at um, bell laboratories and um and and then we did the you know first round of experiments to try to do this and needless to say There are ambiguities because uh, you may see the disappearance of the second harmonic signal, um, but is that because the symmetry was broken or is that also related to the fact that maybe the linear response has changed and that influences the signal that you see? And so subsequent experiments used uh, time-resolved spectroscopic ellipsometry, which is a fancy way of saying, looking at uh, the reflectivity as a function of wavelength with time resolution um, in a way that's sensitive to what are the linear dielectric properties. Um, And that work was done after I had graduated to try to explore whether it was melting. So in the end, is that a useful technique for doing what no but uh, <laughs> but it was interesting to explore i
0: guess i had a couple questions because i think i have i um, i'm misinformed about lasers because they're in popular culture so much like what is the strict definition of a laser and maybe how did your laser work in terms of how did it create the laser
1: sure so okay sorry for being late yeah. ah, no problem. um so um the first so the first idea was to was to use um uh, longer wavelength light and making uh, a maser, so microwave amplification by stimulated emission of radiation and once that was achieved, they folks thought of well wouldn't this be cool if we could do this in the visible so the basic idea is. Suppose that I have excited a certain medium so that I have put electrons in um, higher, higher states than they would normally be in, and they could fall down and radiate with characteristic color or in a frequency. If I were to put this medium between sort of barbershop mirrors so that a light wave, that happened to go in the right direction and hit the mirror could bounce back and pass a second time through the medium and maybe hit another mirror and do Mm -hmm. this multiple times because the probability of an atom emitting a photon is proportional to how many photons are already in that mode. Hmm. You can get preferential gain in a, an optical mode, which is just a, a, the physical layout of the electromagnetic fields as it bounces back and forth between the mirrors, so that you can, you can roughly get a winner-take-all kind of situation. So you have to keep supplying energy to pump atoms to excited states, and then you have to supply a feedback mechanism so that a spontaneous emission, which always happens, that happens to go in the right direction, hits the mirror and comes back, has the opportunity to pass many times through the gain medium, and it will, you know, it will. if, if the round-trip gain exceeds the round-trip loss, so the mirrors aren't perfect, and if you want to see the beam that that's coming out and then presumably at least one of the mirrors better be leaking out some of the light. So there's a round trip loss associated with that as well as scattering. If the gain exceeds the round trip laws, then the intensity will build up and you can have most of the energy coming out in one or a very small number of modes. So, so, the light amplification by stimulated emission, the stimulated emission was worked out by Einstein in very early years of the uh, 20th century um, based on a statistical mechanics and thermodynamics argument. And it, it it's not something that we normally see because it is unusual to have a population of atoms such that more are in the excited state than in the, the unexcited mm-hmm. state which is required cuz they like
0: to they like to be at rest
1: so, so things fall down yeah and and so equilibrium tends to be that you're more likely to be found at lower energy than at higher energy. At absolute zero temperature, you're frozen into the lowest possible energy state. As you heat things up, there's a rising probability that you might find a system in an excited state. And it's the Boltzmann factor that describes how relatively how probable it is that you'll find the system in an excited state. But you always, because it's e to the minus the energy above the, the lowest state divided by Boltzmann's constant times the temperature, no matter what your energy is, that factor is always less than 1. Mm. You're more, it's more probable that you will be found in a lower energy state. And there's a symmetry between absorption and emission, so that if, a, if an atom in the upper state is, is happy to emit a photon to fall down as it falls down to a lower state, that photon, if it encounters a similar atom that's in the ground state, has a, a chance of absorbing it and going into the upper state. So the probabilities are such that unless you have more in the upper state than in the lower state, you're net absorbing as opposed to emitting. So that was the challenge, is to identify a mechanism by which you could achieve what's called a population inversion. You have more atoms sitting there in the excited state, ready to fall down and surf on the wave as it comes by. And the easiest way to engineer that is with what we call a four-level system. So you, you excite between a ground state and a higher energy state that rapidly decays slightly to an adjacent uh, state that cannot radiate back to the ground state because there are certain symmetry rules associated with radiation. But it can radiate down to a fourth state, which then rapidly decays to the ground state. So that way, the pumping throws atoms up to the upper level where they rapidly leave. So it's possible to keep pumping see, without yeah. wasting. And then you can achieve this inversion because there are no atoms left in that fourth state, the bottom of the of the lasing transition, because that rapidly decays to a lower ground state energy. And that's how uh, a number of lasers operate.
0: That's and the initial great. excitement, is that light?
1: It can be light. Um, it was for the uh, laser that uh, we worked on at, at Harvard. Um, but the trend now is whenever you can to make it electrical. So diode lasers use an electric current to bop electrons up to an excited state and then they radiate. And they, they have Tremendous efficiency on the order of tens of percent, whereas the efficiency of, for example, an argon-ion laser, which uh, was the first laser I bought here to do uh, my research, used about 22 kilowatts of electrical power to generate five watts of light. (laughs) And the rest is heat. Yeah. Okay, that's not very good sigh so yeah so nowadays when you can do a solid when you we can get away with a solid state laser it's it's much 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 nicer usually it's also quieter than an argon or a a gas laser
0: the second hard part of that is the the femtosecond like is that a mechanical shutter is this like electrical there, there are no
1: mechanical shutters that that work at that speed so the The evolution of short pulse lasers, um, the the first kind were pumped with a flash lamp. So you you have an electric, you charge up a capacitor bank, you discharge it through some flash lamps that emit a broad spectrum burst of light, and you, you typically house this in parabolic type mirrors so that the light that comes out of the flash lamp gets focused or elliptical mirrors so that it's focused on a a rod so for example you may have heard of neodymium yag that's a common uh lasing material or uh these days um, titanium sapphire so titanium doped sapphire um these are these are just materials where um a certain ion is largely isolated from the surroundings, can be bopped up to an excited state and then uh, emit from there in a fairly well-characterized spectrum. So if you you do electrically-based flashlight type things, you typically get pulses on the order of a few nanoseconds, so 10 to the minus nine seconds. If you wanna go shorter, So one of the important things to remember is that the speed of light is one foot per nanosecond. Uh, Wow. So a foot is a useful unit for that purpose and that purpose Right. (laughs) So if you build a cavity that's, oh, I don't know, four feet long, a round-trip time would be about eight nanoseconds. So to build up, you, you, you end up having to oscillate many times through there and you gradually get this exponential rise and then sort of the last pass while you still have big population inversion grabs as much of that energy as possible and that's the line share that ends up leaking out of the output mirror. But there is this buildup build and, and a way to get around the long buildup while the flash lamps so the early part of the flash lamp pulse starts bopping ions up to their excited state but until the whole flash has happened you don't have the maximum inversion Uh, and so the, the idea is you want to not allow lasing to start happening while that population buildup is taking place. So you put in something called a saturable absorber. You put in a little something that is willing to eat the photons that would otherwise happily oscillate back and forth until all of those, maybe they're dye atoms or maybe there's something else, all of those have now done their absorption and they're transparent at this point. If you time things right, that's the moment when the gain is best, and then you can launch a picosecond type pulse, something on the other 20 to 30 picoseconds. To get shorter, you have a problem that any material in the path, so... You're going through a gain medium and Mm. that's material. It's going to have atoms in it. It will have dispersion. Dispersion meaning that the blue colors are going to go more slowly through that medium than the red colors, like in a prism and it fans. So that means that if you have a short pulse, And you, the short pulse inevitably has to be composed of different colors. If you only have a single color, it's an infinite sine wave. It doesn't start or stop anywhere. And if you start adding together sine waves of nearby frequencies, you can start getting them to cancel each other out as you move away from, let's say, time zero. Mm-hmm. And so the more different wavelengths or frequencies that you combine, the shorter you can make that burst. So if you want a short pulse, now you need a lot of different colors. Oh, crap. But now that you have a lot of different colors, they're going at different speeds through the gain medium. And so if you made a short pulse, it's going to pull itself apart as it propagates through. You need some way of providing negative group velocity dispersion. So you need some way to get the blues. Stagger it the other way. To, yeah, exactly. Any ideas how you might do that?
0: <laughs> if, if you... No. no.
1: It, it It's tricky, but the idea is let's use a pair of equilateral prisms and arrange it so that the light... Passes near the tip of the first prism. And that's going to fan out the colors. The blue colors are going to bend the most. And the red colors, less. So now put a matching equilateral prism, whose base is parallel, but who points in the opposite direction, Mm -hmm. so that you get the blues to go through the tip of that prism and the reds have to go through a lot more glass. And if you put that second prism on a translation stage, you can adjust just how much extra glass the different frequencies have to go through and you can tune through an approximate zero for the round trip dispersion in the cavity. So that's the trick that, we used. At the time, we used the four prism design, in which one of the prisms was on a translation stage. In other designs, you may um, have a back pass, so you, you use two prisms, hit a mirror, and come back through the two prisms and undo the, the separation that you, you achieve. So there are different approaches. Um, and that gets you down into the um, many tens of uh, femtoseconds for uh, the pulse duration um, and then there are other mode locking yeah. techniques that that lasers use. To
0: is, is collecting data or testing these systems just as hard because of the, the time scale
1: there are different techniques so um, the the start of our laser the the, the part that produces the short initial short pulses, was called a colliding pulse mode lock laser. And that meant that, um, so we had a ring cavity and a pulse would go around in each direction. And there was an advantage in terms of reducing loss if the two pulses overlapped in uh, an absorbing material. So each one could bleach a bit for the other. Mm -hmm. And so if you put that absorber a quarter of the way around from the gain, that meant that each direction got to see the same amount of gain. And then they cooperated in colliding in the absorbing jet and, and bleached it for each other. And so... That provided enough of an incentive for light that otherwise could just be continuous in moving around to actually have better gain if they ganged up and cooperated. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so then you also adjust the prisms that are part of that path so that in the complete round trip or you know, circuit, you have net zero dispersion, um, and then you can build up... Uh, nanosecond pulses. So every every time the pulse hits the output coupler, a little bit leaks out. And so you get, depending on, let's say the whole thing is, it's on the order of 10 feet in circumference. So every 10 nanoseconds, you get a pulse out. In fact, you get two that are in slightly different directions because you have beams going around both ways. And you can use one of those as a way of monitoring what's going on and the other one you use for your experiment. Very cool. Then that's low energy per pulse, but high repetition rate, right? So 100 megahertz. And then what we would do is throw away almost every one of those and amplify one every tenth of a second. And and put a ton of energy into a single short pulse. And in doing that we had to expand the the cross section of the pulse in order not to damage optics along the
0: way. Right. And since like working on that and then maybe implementing your own lasers here as your part of it, like what was the hardest part along that? Was it like acquiring the lasers and the funding? Was it like did you run into big problems setting them up? at some point, um, or?
1: Okay, I'll share one story here. So, um, one of my early graduate students, thesis students <laughs> um, uh, was a pretty clever guy and very capable, but he had the habit of fiddling with everything. Now, there are about 50 degrees of freedom in That laser cat. Yeah. And so it is very easy if you don't know what the hell you're doing to walk way far away from any hope of getting it to lay. And when this happens, it's (laughs) on me to go back (laughs) and spend the time to try to put the genie back in the bottle. And so I... You know, we were coming down to the wire. I needed to get data for you know, so I had something to publish and stuff. It, and Martin did one of them. <laughs> Apparently, I kind of blew. Up. Uh, <laughs> he remembers this very vividly. At this point, he's a professor of physics at the University of Redlands, so you know, we does. see each other. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly forgiven. Anyway, um, so it it was a little tense towards the end of my probationary period (laughs) before they would either toss me or give me tenure. Not only for this reason, but because... um, Have you heard of Enron? Mm,
0: It rings a bell, but...
1: Yeah. So we have a religion... In this country which is deregulation and the market knows best and so the idea was that we were going to deregulate electricity and let the market compete to lower prices. Enron figured out ways of basically making a killing by holding us hostage and so (laughs) You want your air conditioner to run. You, you know, it, it, it's sort of the same thing that Texas got to see when they had their freeze, and so the electricity providers were jacking up rates by factors of ten to a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to be cost savvy, the Claremont Colleges had put themselves on a, a special arrangement with Southern California Edison, which allowed them, Edison, to notify the colleges that we were gonna be blacked out. <laughs> and they could do this something like up to 30 times in a year.
0: It's part of the contract.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and for this, we would save something like a million bucks a year. Um, And for the first few years, it wasn't a problem. But then with the Enron business, um, and my laser, okay, if you're running (laughs) and then they cut the power, you're done for the day because the thermal loading and, and various things are such that it's going to take hours to get back up and running. So that made things a little bit intense Um, luckily i was able to get some data um, and write up a paper Um, but as it turns out we're still on that kind of agreement now the colleges thought they were being clever by installing diesel generators and these diesel generators because the consortium is supposed to be given enough time you know, within an hour you're going to have to go off the grid that they can fire up those generators and then cut over and we, the end users, aren't supposed to notice anything. Um, Sadly, that's been theory. (laughs) The practice has been largely um, divergent from the theory. Uh, Lately, the terms of the program that allows you, you you, you let Edison shut you down for a certain number of times a year, were altered because uh, you would only qualify if the generation was clean. So you can't burn fossil fuels in order to do this. And, And so I had hoped at that point That this would be the impetus the consortium needed to get off this program and institute time of use metering around the campuses, which would make it profitable or beneficial for MUD to install more on-campus solar and, and probably some battery systems so that we can make electricity and store it when it's abundant and then use use our own when it's expensive right instead the consortium (laughs) investigated using um renewable diesel and oxymoron you would think i mean but this is made from I forget whether this is the vegetable oil stuff. or a- Anyway, it's, right. it's, it's not from petroleum. And uh, so the hope was, well, this had to be approved by the air quality control district. And it took them over two years. But they finally came back and said, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so, so we're still on that that program, um, and they're fueling with this renewable diesel, but it still doesn't work very well. Right, and the latest round, given how many times, for instance, Eckert's equipment yes, has I've been heard ruined, um, we are moving to installing our own. Power generating system for the labs on the roof of—I don't know whether it's going to be on Olin or what—but that—that's finally in the works.
0: That's good news.
1: Yeah, he—he he, he can talk to your blue. He's he, blue in the yeah. about this. He's—he's yeah, he's had to waste so much time yeah. repairing equipment. Yeah,
0: and of course he flies out, and the next day there's a power outage. So yeah, it must have been
1: fun. Yeah, no. We, uh, at our house, we lost power three times in a week uh, earlier this summer. Apparently, it flickered off yesterday when the yeah. thunderstorm happened, but it wasn't
0: bad. No, not too bad. Well, I don't want to keep you too past too far past what we planned for, so thanks for coming and talking. It was a lot of fun. You survived the, uh, the first installment. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming and talking. You bet.